The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I'm delighted to have Tony Bevilacqua join me today. He is the CEO and founder of Cognitive3D. Welcome, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. I'm so intrigued with your company and even your background. Tell us a little bit of how you got to this point in your career of founding Cognitive3D. Obviously, it's been several years since you founded it, but you don't come from the traditional market research space. Yeah, that's right. I don't. I'm actually a second-time founder. My company prior to this focused on revenue optimization, and I had a, a very heavy analytics backend. So we made a lot of decisions based off of collected data and helped our clients that build better revenue optimization. Through that company, I spent a lot of time working in the game space and had early exposure to you know the Oculus DK1, DK2. And when we ended up selling my previous company, I really wanted to spin out and do something in the virtual augmented and mixed reality space. I ended up founding Cognitive 3D in late 2015. And from there, we started to construct, you know, kind of a new way to visualize spatial analytics. So I'm just going to do a lot of clarifications for definitions. Oculus DK1 and Oculus DK2, can you clarify what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So these were the very early development kits that Palmer Lucky created for Oculus, which is a uh, head-mounted display for virtual reality. Okay. Oculus was ultimately purchased by Facebook and today has a number of headsets on the market. I know there are lots of different dimensions of virtual reality or definitions. I'd love for you just to share with us kind of high level, what are those definitions and and what do they actually mean? Let's start with virtual reality. Sounds good. So virtual reality, we call it VR, right? And VR is when you're wearing a head-mounted display, so something attached to your face, and it fully encompasses the user's field of view. So everything that they see is computer-generated within the headset and encompasses everything they can see. The next one would be augmented reality, or AR. AR is something like Pokemon Go. Right. So it's kind of a pass through experience, right? You're augmenting the world, but it doesn't necessarily influence or overtake your field of view. The third is mixed reality or MR. And mixed reality is when you augment the user's field of view with additional 3D items, objects, and experiences. And virtual reality, you have the headset, but your field of view, how is that different from the mixed reality? Can you clarify that? Yeah. So, I mean, in a VR headset, I mean, you're basically wearing a giant, you know, brick on your face, right? And it basically you're rendering everything the user sees. Typically on a mixed reality headset, you've got clear glass and then the, so it's your world, right? And then we're rendering additional things within it. 
So how did you go about doing this? Did you say, hey, listen, I can build some really cool technology and then figure out the application of the technology? Give us a sense of how you went about, because this is very cutting edge technology, at least when you look at it from the lens of market research, the general market research industry. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's my take on it thus far. Yeah, I mean, when we were at my previous company and we saw these, you know, new headsets, new capabilities, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, there's a whole new opportunity to collect insights on how people interact. If you start thinking of the headset, the or what we call an HMP, as a vehicle for data collection, there's a lot of really great, you know, kind of opportunities to understand human behavior okay. and human performance. But that's not really where I started. I kind of looked at this from there's a good opportunity here. I know games and entertainment is very excited about VR. I think I can build a product that can help game developers build better content. So we started building out this platform for collecting spatial insights. And as we started to take it to market in mid-2016, we had plenty of game developers and entertainment companies, but we also saw you know, the essentials of the world, you know, kind of registering for the platform and using it for enterprise uses. And, you know, as we saw that, we started looking into those use cases and there was two predominant use cases, one in consumer research and the second in training and simulation. By the beginning of 2017, we had fully pivoted the company towards enterprise uses and focusing on these two use cases. And I know that you there was a study that you did with Accenture as well as other partners as it relates to enterprise client. Can you share a little bit about that study that you did? I think it was with Kellogg, right? Yeah, that's right. So Kellogg's was the primary customer in this particular use case. I had a few partners in this. So Accenture was kind of the lead in terms of getting everything put together. Okay. Qualcomm was the headset that we were using. So they provided a, a reference design with eye tracking built into it. And then we had in-context solutions and they provided basically all the 3D geometry, like the actual boxes of Pop-Tarts and things. Now, in this particular use case, uh, Kellogg's was introducing a new product to market called the Pop-Tarts Bytes. And they wanted to understand, uh, you know, different placements of this particular product on the shelf and how they could potentially influence users to notice their new product. So we ended up building out a use case and scenario for this. It was a two-cell study. Okay. And the first cell was their traditional placement. So at eye level, they were going to introduce the product in their premium location. And the second cell was in an alternate location suggested by our team and using some signage. What we discovered in this particular study was that, you know, while users purchased more at that eye level location in cell one, by introducing the product in cell two at the lower location, we still created a good amount of sales and visibility for Pop-Tarts Bites, but we didn't cannibalize the rest of the brand category. So Kellogg's in cell two was able to create a 18% lift in brand sales by using the alternate insights collected by virtual reality and eye tracking. When they placed the Pop-Tart fights at a lower level, did they essentially expand their sales and not cannibalize their core product? Was that the finding? Yeah, so they didn't cannibalize the premium product placements that they typically had, because obviously if you're putting a new product in that shelf, that space is already occupied by premium products that are already selling. Right. 
by introducing the product at a lower location, it left out that premium row completely intact to generate sales like it normally would and also introduce the new product to market. Okay. And how do you, like, I'm so curious, in many ways, when I first think of this way of collecting data, it feels that it's almost qualitative. So you look at each scenario or each person who goes through this experience, and then you kind of form an opinion when you look at multiple consumers that go through this. But you also said that you can actually aggregate some of this data. Can you tell us the difference between these two? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we started the company, we started with kind of the qualitative approach. So we created a tool set called Scene Explorer. Okay. And Scene Explorer is a full 3D visualization platform for visualizing how a user interacted inside of your your content. Okay. So it provides a full 3D one-to-one replay of exactly what your users did and how they interacted in 3D space. This is really helpful in training and simulation for things like after action review. It's also helpful in consumer research for developing hypotheses. But when we wanted to create, you know, kind of a more exacting insight from the data that we were collecting, we really had to turn to other methods and other tools to be able to get to, you know, that level of insight. So we started to introduce new tools like Object Explorer, which allows you to look at every single box of Pop-Tarts within a particular 3D space and subscribe gaze data, fixations, packaging interactions with your hands or controllers, and provide all of those insights on an aggregate basis. So it's somewhat you know, quantitative because it's an exact result for a large number of sessions for a particular item or a particular group of items. So gaze data is basically how long they look at the particular product or even what they might look at specifically on the packaging. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And when you're using a 3D engine to be able to collect these insights, you can actually collect a lot more exact data. You know, kind of the traditional method here would be to record video, use an eye tracker, like a Toby device, you know, or something along those lines, and subscribe eye tracking data to that video. You can then use something like a point of interest tool or POI mm-hmm. to draw specific points of interest and count those across all of your sessions. It does require a lot of scrubbing, a lot of manual work. When you're using a 3D engine, all of those points of interest within the experience are your 3D items. So the user is wearing an eye tracker, but the eye tracker is aware of the depth of the scene and all the items that are within it. So that means that I can subscribe all the gaze automatically with no additional work to all the different packages within the scene. That's amazing. How many people do you, on a larger scale basis, how many people do you typically have go through a simulation to kind of validate or actually test the hypothesis? Yeah, the use cases that we've seen so far are typically in the hundreds. Okay. And then we have some customers that are running in the low thousands in terms of the number of headsets that they go through. It really just kind of depends on the number that the customer is looking for. And are you part of a toolkit within a specific client? You know, let's say, are you in the sales or retail solutioning group at a large CPG company in terms of testing out placement and understanding the use of shelf space? 
Yeah, it kind of depends. You know, we see a lot of different CPG companies approaching us, especially the market research companies trying to find solutions and leverage virtual augmented and mixed reality in their research. We also do a lot of academic research as well. There's dozens of institutions all over the United States, Canada, and Europe that use our platform for research. But we also have the brands approaching us quite often as well, looking to build insights to take to retailers. Right, to make their case as to why their product should be placed somewhere. That's right. And I guess it could also test promotional material, end caps and everything else in terms of its effectiveness. The whole meal deal. I mean, the, the sky's the limit when you're dealing with something in 3D. Yeah. You know, you can build the experience to what you're looking for. And you can obviously iterate through a lot of different tests because you can quickly change things within the engine. How do you decide between these three modes that you talked about, virtual reality, augmented and mixed reality? How do you know which type of study you need to do So it kind of depends on the types of insights that you're trying to collect, right? So, you know, on the virtual reality side, that's all about simulation. So you're simulating the user's entire field of view. If you're looking to do something that's a little bit more physical, perhaps in store Mm -hmm. or in your existing research facility, that's where you would start using something like a mixed reality device. The primary use case in augmented reality that we see right now is primarily on consumer-facing applications, filters, those types of things. Before we dive into our next topic, here's a brief message from our sponsor. For brands looking to hear the voice of the customer loud and clear, there's no better partner than Paradigm Sample. Looking for direct access to engaged respondents and free survey programming and hosting? Let's get specific. Need to survey moms, pet owners, or customers with particular automotive loyalties? Our panel access and MR operation services can handle it all. Whether local, regional, or global, our team is ready to source the right respondents and get your survey in and out of field on time and within budget. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. I remember going to a conference at one point and they were doing kind of test drives of cars and and testing out the features in the car and where the coffee holder was placed. Is that an application here as well? Absolutely. So consumer research for me is not just like planograms. Right. You know, there's a lot of opportunity to also take this into product design. And a lot of vehicle manufacturers are using these types of insights to be able to understand buyer behavior and collect more intricate insights on how people are interacting on vehicles that are not yet constructed or are still in the prototype phase. If you think of a traditional method where, you know, a vehicle manufacturer builds out a clay model or some sort of physical prototype, it's an expensive process and iteration takes time. Right. When you think about trying to take those designs from 3D engine into, you know, something, well, 3D design tool into 3D engine, you have the opportunity to test a lot of different designs very quickly without undergoing the expense of building prototypes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I know like right now in our space, we keep talking about faster, quicker, agile research to kind of support product development or support quick ad testing and copy messaging. How does this methodology work around the context of time? I mean, is this a quick read or does it take a while to kind of plan and coordinate? Can you shed some light there? Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge in constructing research in you know, these types of technologies is really around content creation. Okay. So if you have your content created and constructed, you're in good shape to be able to iterate, you know, very quickly. But in terms of time to insight, if you put the headset on and you go through a particular simulation and take the headset off, the insights are immediately available. Same thing for on an aggregate basis as well. So 
if you're running a car clinic or something along those lines and you want to understand, can people find the volume controls, you're going to have those insights you know, inside the hour. That's pretty powerful. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't start like that. You know, I, I think that's important to mention. I mean, you know, when we did this Kellogg study, you know, there was a lot of manual scrubbing of data because, you know, we had overlooked, you know, some of the capabilities we needed, like being able to group multiple facings and being able to, you know, create different facing groups. So for example, you know, being able to organize data by price or brand or placement on shelf and all those types of things. And um, a lot of this informed our roadmap. And since we've created all these features to be able to create all these groups that automatically create more specific aggregates on the fly. Let's talk about how people who actually participate in these studies feel about this type of application or research um, study participation. What's your sense on that? Do you feel that it's different from other research techniques in terms of their overall experience and, you know, opinion? It's not really. I mean, we still do the offline qualitative research. So there's typically a survey that goes along with this. Okay. You know, we also have in-application surveys as well. So we can prompt questions based off particular user behavior. So if the user goes through, you know, multiple different products, we could ask them a question mid-simulation if that's something that you wanted to do. But yeah, I mean, basically... I was going to say, the net is like, you know, we always worry about how respondents or people feel about their user experience in traditional surveys or other types of methodologies. And I'm just curious because this feels a little bit more gamified or, I don't know, fun. Yeah. So, I mean, we do see good correlation between the behavior in a physical environment and uh, the behavior in a virtual one. Okay. The headset is somewhat more invasive in that you're, you know, you do have to put equipment on and wear the headset. It's also kind of changing, you know, with the COVID-19 situation as well. You know, these physical focus groups are pretty much uh, paused, at least for the time being. Mm. And what we've seen retailers and brands do is they're starting to think about, you know, how do we collect distributed insights? And I think that's actually something that, you know, uh, virtual reality can actually offer quite well. There's actually a new headset that we've been working with, which is called the Pico Neo 2, and it has built-in eye tracking, and it's at a pretty good price point as well, and a full-featured headset. What that means is that we could potentially collect these insights from users that have these sets at home as well, if they're interested and willing to participate in the study. Got it. I was actually going to ask you, do people have to come into a central location to be able to participate in this research? And I think you just answered that question that to date it is that way, but over time you could see headsets being shipped directly to the consumer at the house or wherever their location is. Exactly. So we have, yeah, in that particular use case, I mean, right now it was typically a physical presence, mm-hmm. you know, so you'd still bring people in just like you do any other type of uh, uh, consumer research clinic. But we're starting to see some of these retailers start to implement these new ways to collect insights remotely. In the training and simulation space in particular, a lot of companies have these centralized training facilities, and they were flying a lot of employees or uh, having employees transit to particular locations to you know, get classroom training or those types of things. VR is introducing this opportunity to have a lot of distributed training capabilities at all of these different sites. And where have you seen the uptick in terms of you know, enterprise clients' acceptance? Or is it, I'm speaking geographically, is it primarily in the U.S. or have you tested this outside of the U.S. or used this outside of the U.S. or Canada? You know, we're a Canadian company. We're based in Vancouver. Our primary customers are all based in the United States. Okay. And then we have a few customers based in Europe as well. Nothing in the Asia Pacific region yet. So, and that's probably just a matter of where you're focused in in terms of your sales and marketing efforts, or, or do you think that there's something 
about this methodology that really resonates in the U.S. but might not resonate outside of the U.S.? I think it's more about just our focus. I mean, we haven't uh, pursued these markets and we feel that there's uh, the markets that we are working in are frothy and full of opportunity. Yeah. Oh, I like that frothy and full of opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a Starbucks latte in a long time. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would, I, well, listen, uh, you know, it's kind of like this. Uh, if you can make it in the U.S., you can make it anywhere, basically. It's one of the toughest markets to get into. Yeah, absolutely. And on the training side, what kind of training? Pro- give us an idea of some of the training applications. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we typically work in applications that typically involve complexity, potentially danger. And, you know, those are the ones that resonate the most. You know, if you think about, you know, trying to train a lineman or somebody like that, how to work with electrical wires and electrical poles and all those types of things and go up in the bucket, you know, that's a pretty dangerous proposition, pretty dangerous scenario with lots of setup. So we're starting to see the what you have in the aerospace industry, which is full-fledged flight simulators, start to apply to the you know the everyday um, person you know yep. uh, in their everyday work, right? So suddenly we're starting to see you know bucket simulators, you know, and being able to uh, do your work and, and your simulation and within a particular simulator for your field of work. What's interesting about this when we talk about cognitive 3D is we have all the spatial data flowing into the platform. And we also have this capability called the objective system. And what the objective system does is it allows you to evaluate all the spatial behavior and the human performance information and measure that against a particular sequence. So where we find a lot of our success on the training and simulation side is uh, companies that have a lot of really sequential processes. And there's sequences for a reason, right? So this is the sequence to keep you safe. It's really important that you put on your personal protective equipment before you do steps X, Y, and Z. So with the objective system, you can actually define all of that criteria inside the dashboard, and then it will measure uh, employee compliance against those steps. You can evaluate a lot of different things. So, you know, we can evaluate, did they notice all of the hazards? Like with eye tracking, did they notice all the hazards within a particular space before proceeding with the work? In our lockout tagout situation, um, our customer wants the customer to put their PPE on. So they're going to put on their their hard hat. Um, But then they also need to survey the space. So, you know, you're going to be working on that electrical panel and there's also a lockout box beside it. You should really survey both of those items before you go off and tell your supervisor that you're going to get started with the work. That's a great way to kind of certify somebody for their training if they pass their training program. Absolutely. So when we're dealing with utility companies, electrical companies, oil and gas, you name it, they've got a lot of different simulations they want to certify their employees on. And their traditional methodology of doing this is bringing everybody into a central location and training them and having physical trainers, you know, qualitatively uh, survey every single employee and see how well they did within that and they get a mark. With VR, we can quantitatively measure how they behaved in a particular simulator. They could recertify in the simulator. When they don't have work available to them, they can go through the simulator without the need of having a trainer in the room. And can I ask you, when person goes through the virtual reality and then they're in real life, like how far apart are those two experiences? I mean, obviously there's the physicality of it, but in terms of what they view with their eyes, is it really different? 
You've got a pretty substantial field of view in the modern headsets, and they all have different levels of quality as well. Right. The main the main headset that we recommend right now is the Vive Pro I, which has built-in eye tracking and a, a good quality and good field of view. But there's also high-end headsets out there, like the Vario VR2. That has built-in eye tracking, but it's got 20-20 vision, giving you better, you know, the ability to read like labels inside of an aircraft, like that level of detail within the field of view. So really just kind of depends on, on what your requirements are and the budget. That sounds great. You know, Tony, without sharing all the details of the financials, but I'm just curious, like, how should we consider this type of research in terms of, you know, price point? Is it more in line with qualitative focus groups? Is it, you know, traditional quant? Can you get, give us an idea of what that might look like? And if you're not comfortable, you don't have to answer that. Yeah, no worries. I think the biggest challenge when you're trying to figure out, like, is this worth the investment is really kind of identifying how you're going to construct your content. Do we have the assets? uh, And is this something we can do? Um, When you're talking about the sophisticated brands, they typically have 3D assets for pretty much everything, every product that they offer in market, including all the variations. And they typically have a full set of their competitor products as well. So when you're talking about those types of use cases, they usually have all the building blocks that they need to create a simulation. Okay. So when we're thinking about cost, it's usually how do I create the content? Once you have it, then you're kind of, you've unlocked the gauntlet. Like you have so much opportunity to test a lot of variations and how those things are, you know, resonate with your audience. It's similar to a qualitative. You're bringing people in, running them through the headset as opposed to computer-based research. It's just a more in-depth data capture. Well, I so appreciate you uh, joining me today. This is fascinating. I think this has some, I feel like we're still in early stages and there's so many more applications that we're going to see with this and even specifically in the research world. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, Tony, if people want to find out more about your company, do you want to shout out any, uh, your website or anything? Yeah, absolutely. So the company's called Cognitive3D, Cognitive3D.com. Okay. And if you have a training simulation or consumer research need focused on virtual augmented or mixed reality as your kind of your vehicle and how you're going to deliver that research, uh, Cognitive3D has a, a built-in plug-in that you can just drop into your experience. You don't need to accommodate us. You know, it just works. That sounds great. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.